0: If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 36. If you have one of the church Bibles, that's page 384. And I want you to imagine with me for a moment that we are all that's left. Washington is gone. The Pentagon is mere rubble. Our nukes have been rendered useless. And our aircraft carriers are all sunk or otherwise disabled. And all that's left of our military is a handful of cell groups holding up in a few scrapped together bunkers. The United States doesn't exist anymore. And the ones who caused its destruction are on their way here right now to demand our surrender and to take us away. We're all that's left. When that happens, To whom will you turn? In whom will you trust? For King Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem, those are not hypothetical questions. And what I just described is not a hypothetical situation. We're going to see that as we open Isaiah 36 this morning. So please read with me Isaiah 36, 1 through 5. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah... Sennacherib king of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of judah and took them And the king of Assyria sent the rabshaka from lachish to king hezekiah at jerusalem with a great army And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field And there came out to meet him eliakim the son of hilkiah who was over the household and shebna the secretary and joah The son of asaph the recorder And the rabshaka said to them say to hezekiah Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? King Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king of Judah. And this event, we're told, according to verse one, takes place in his 14th year. That makes him about 39 years old, which is my age. And I can't even imagine the incredible pressure he must have felt in this moment. For one, Assyria has already carried off the northern kingdom of Israel. And after that, Samaria. And according to verse 1, all the fortified cities of Judah were all taken like that, except for Jerusalem. It's the last stand. This is the only place left that Hezekiah could say he rules over he's king, but his kingdom is very small right now. They're all that's left. And at that point, Sennacherib, the Assyrian king sends his general called the Rabshaka to come with his terms. Hezekiah in turn sends out his own little delegation of representatives to meet him. And they sit down together to discuss what's going to happen next. The big question that Sennacherib poses is this. On what do you rest this trust of yours? In whom do you now trust? And that's not only the question being posed by Sennacherib, the great king of Assyria, but it's also the big question being posed by Yahweh himself, by, by, by our God, all throughout the book of Isaiah. And in fact, the preaching team has spoken on chapter after chapter in Isaiah with the understanding that God's main point as spoken through Isaiah is this. Yahweh judges all, but he restores all who trust his appointed king, servant, and conqueror. The question is, in whom do you trust? The answer, according to Isaiah, is to trust Yahweh and the king he has appointed. But Sennacherib, the great king of Assyria, who has conquered all of Israel and all of Samaria and all of Judah, except for one final city, disagrees. His main point, as spoken through the Rabshaka, Shaka, is this. Sennacherib judges all, but he restores all who trust him, the great king and conqueror. So the significance of this altercation between Sennacherib and Hezekiah is hard to overstate. What happens here, no matter how it goes, is central to the entire message and reliability of the book of Isaiah. Who is right? Who is trustworthy? who is the true great king. And in what reads like a courtroom drama, the two cases are made in this chapter, one in favor of Sennacherib, the great king, and one in favor of Yahweh and his king. And up first is Sennacherib. So let's read verses six through 16. This is his case against Yahweh's king, Hezekiah. Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I've come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to their Abshakeh, Please speak with your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. Let's stop there. In these verses... King Sennacherib presents five reasons why it is foolish to trust Hezekiah, Yahweh's king. Let's examine each one of those in turn. Number one, Hezekiah has made a foolish alliance, according to verse six. The first argument is that Hezekiah has made this foolish alliance with Egypt for protection. Pharaoh, he says, is a broken reed of a staff. Now the point of a staff is to lean on it, to trust in it, to provide support. And he says that Pharaoh is this broken reed with a sharp point. If you lean on that, what's going to happen? It's going to pierce you. It's only going to harm you. It will not help you. It's not worthy of your trust at all. And the implication is that because Hezekiah has made just that kind of alliance, he is not to be trusted either. Now, This was a brilliant place for Sennacherib to start his argument against Hezekiah. Why? Because Yahweh agrees with him. Consider back in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 3 says this, the protection of Pharaoh will turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. And then in in Isaiah 30, verse 7, just a little bit later, Very plainly, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Those are the words of Yahweh. So whether Sinatra knew of Isaiah's prophecies or not is unclear. But by stating his argument as something true, it surely would have begun sounding reasonable to the people listening. Like they don't actually disagree with him at this point. And so a little bit of doubt is therefore planted in preparation for his next point. Number two, Hezekiah is limiting religious freedom, according to verse seven. In verse seven, Sinatra anticipates their response. They'd say, trust in Egypt. No, we don't trust in Egypt. We trust in Yahweh, our God. That's the answer he expects. And so speaking for Sennacherib, the Rabbi Shaka replies basically this way. Oh, oh yeah, of course. Sure, it's great to trust in Yahweh. But see, didn't Hezekiah remove all of those altars and places of worship? I mean, it used to be that people could worship Yahweh anywhere they wanted to, right? Remember that? Those were good times. But wait a minute. Hezekiah took all those down and he said, you have to worship at this altar, which conveniently is where Hezekiah lives. Hmm. I mean, if if you're cool with him limiting your freedom, so be it. Have Hezekiah as your king. So is Sinatra right? The answer is partly. The answer is partly Partly, he is right that Hezekiah removed many places of worship from all around Judah. You can read about that in 2 Kings 18. It's well documented. However, in none of those places were they worshiping Yahweh. These were were altars to foreign gods. Yahweh had said that the place he desired people to worship was at Jerusalem. So Hezekiah listened and obeyed. This wasn't Hezekiah being selfish. This was Hezekiah obeying Yahweh. Now, again, it's not clear if Sinatra would have known that or not. It could be that he genuinely thought Hezekiah was being selfish. Or it could be that he was purposely misleading them with this argument. Regardless, his aim was to speak confidently and at least with enough truth in his word, his words to sow doubt into the ears and the hearts and the minds of his listeners. And now that he's done that and they're wondering, is this guy legit? Does he know what he's talking about? He changes tactics. It's time for him to go on the offensive. So that's number three. Argument number three is Hezekiah is militarily incompetent. According to verses eight and nine. Here, Sinatra says, listen, Hezekiah couldn't save you even if he wanted to. You can picture the Rabshaka gesturing towards the army that is surrounding Jerusalem, camped in the background. And, and he's saying, listen, I will give you 2,000 of my horses if you can put riders on them. Oh, but you can't. Hmm. The implication is that Hezekiah is so militarily incompetent that he couldn't even use Sinatra's extra horses. Well, is he right? Is Sinatra right? The answer is probably. All of Judah is gone. They're all taken away. This is the last city. Sinatra's forces are absolutely overwhelming. This is a joke of a battle. The only reason this conversation is taking place right now is because Sinatra hopes it'll save a little bit of time. Because taking a city takes time. It takes resources, it takes energy, it takes food for those people. All the logistics of war take time. He's hoping he can just march up and basically say, look guys, it's hopeless. Just look around. Hezekiah is a worthless leader. I'm in charge here. Just listen to me, just surrender. Just give up. All Right now, all Sinatra needs to do is say the word and it's over. And so now any Judeans listening would be feeling seriously intimidated and terrified and questioning their own king's trustworthiness. And so Sinatra now goes for the throat. This is the fourth reason not to trust Hezekiah. He's not Yahweh's king. Verse 10, let me read that again. Moreover, says the Rabshakeh. It is, is it without the Lord that I've come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. He's saying Yahweh is on my side. He told me to come destroy you. Whoa, really? I mean, can can that be? I mean, Isaiah has been saying to trust in Yahweh's appointed king. Have we been trusting in the wrong one? And Isaiah has been saying that Yahweh will discipline us for our disobedience. Would he really destroy even Jerusalem and through this pagan king? What do you think, Grace Fellowship? The scriptures... The scriptures are shocking in how often they will say... That God will use wickedness even for his own purposes. You might think, surely he won't use this wicked king who has destroyed, slaughtered, captured, tortured countless many. But will he? The answer is, I don't know. Maybe. Did, but did Yahweh really send Sinatra to do this? To d- destroy Jerusalem? It's certainly possible probably not. I don't know, but I suspect that Sennacherib was no dummy. He has conquered land after land, after land. And he probably learned a few things about how to take people down. A lot of it is mental warfare, right? And so when, let's say he came and he took away all of Israel, all of Samaria, he's going to interrogate them. Tell me what you know about Judah. You guys are the same people, right? tell me about your God. Tell me about your religion. Tell me where the weak points are. And they probably would have heard over time about this group of people who constantly disobey God and that God in the past has used wicked kings for his purposes. They knew this. And so it could be that Sinatra might genuinely have seen himself as Yahweh's servant, doing Yahweh's will. There are plenty of psychopaths And for that matter, world leaders, past and present, who think of themselves as that way, in that way. I am God's instrument of judgment. Regardless, however much Sinatra knew or didn't know about this, hearing these words would have utterly shaken the Judeans to their very cores. And we know that because of what happens next. The fifth point in his argument, Hezekiah is lying to you. I'm not going to read. I'm not going to reread that, that section for the sake of time. But Hezekiah's delegation basically says, dude, shh, you're scaring the commoners. Can we speak in an aristocratic language so they won't understand what we're saying? Oh guys, <laughs> you just lost bad. You've admitted fear in front of your own people and you just gave your enemy the perfect opportunity and that's, and the Rabshaka masterfully seizes it here. You can picture him gesturing this time, not to his army standing behind him, but to the people on the wall. And he's, and he says, I'm like your master. My master cares about his army, but Hezekiah doesn't care about you. He wants to hide the truth from you, speaking in a foreign tongue. So you don't understand shameful, sad. And then the Rabshaka swings for the knockout punch. In his case against Hezekiah, verse 13 says that he stands up and calls out in a loud voice in Hebrew, Hezekiah is lying to you. Don't let him deceive you. He can't save you and Yahweh won't save you. Thus says Sennacherib, this city is mine. I am the new king. I am the better king. I am the great king. Do not listen to Hezekiah. And with that, all at the climax of this powerful five-point attack against Hezekiah, the people would have been reeling. Everything they thought they knew and understood about their king and about Yahweh is now lying in ruin. And so Sennacherib now makes a move to take the city without needing a single sword to be unsheathed. Here is his case for peace, picking up in verse 16. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Look, he says, I judge all, but I don't want death. I want what's best for everybody. So let's make a deal. You come and make peace with me, and I'll give you each your own land in which to live your own lives. And after a time, I will graciously restore you to a new land just like this one, full of abundance, and you'll be safe and free and at peace with the greater king. This is such a an incredible feat of wordplay. It's truly awe-inspiring. Do you see how Sennacherib makes himself an invading enemy king sound like the good guy? He makes it sound like Jerusalem is already his. He makes it sound like exile is paradise. This is how Yahweh's enemies always speak, friends, and you would do well to learn to recognize their voice. They will always make sin sound sweet and rebellion sound like freedom. And if you listen carefully, you can recognize it early on, even before it grows loud. But even if you don't, even when you don't hear it when it's small and you even begin to taste of the the sweetness of sin, the Lord's enemies will always end up saying the same thing at the end, and that will be your sign. And here it is in the next point in your outline, verses 18 18 through 20. Listen to this. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these land have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? He's saying, have any of the nations ever, have any of their gods ever delivered? Where are the gods of this kingdom or that kingdom? Who among all the gods has ever been saved from me? And who is Yahweh that he thinks he's any different than those gods? Whoops. Sinatra and his servant, the Repshaka, were truly masterful in their wordcraft. But here, at last, they make a fatal flaw. See, you can rail against a human authority. You can claim he made bad decisions and bad alliances and bad religious mandates. You can claim that he can't save his people. You can compare yourself to him and say you're better and you can cry out before everyone that he and all his leaders are corrupt. But once you turn that argument from being against a mortal king to being against the king of kings, you've sealed your fate and you are doomed. Thankfully, Hezekiah knows that and he clings to that fact as his only hope. And now it's time for him to make another case, the case for Yahweh. Let's read a few more verses here, picking up in verse 21. But they, the people listening, were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. And they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. The first response of Hezekiah's men was to tear their clothes, a sign of distress and of mourning. They go and tell Hezekiah all that was said. And he also tears his clothes and puts on sackcloth, which is an extremely uncomfortable material as a further sign of grief and mourning and humility. And then Hezekiah goes into the house of the Lord, Yahweh's temple, the place of worship. And the language describing how Hezekiah feels is vivid. He says it's though the people are in the pangs of childbirth. And for those of you here who have given birth to a child or have witnessed someone giving birth to a child, you know full well what a desperate moment that can be. There's an inevitability about it. The baby is coming. But especially before the advent of modern medicine, if the mother was too weak because of ill health or because of an extended labor, this inevitable arrival of her child could be disastrous. It was not, and in many places today is not, uncommon for both mother and child to die. And so in the most desperate and dependent moment of his life, where does Hezekiah go for help? He could have sent riders to Egypt and asked for Pharaoh to come immediately. Or he could have simply surrendered to Sinatra and asked for mercy. But in his deep distress, he turns to the only one who could help. Well, almost. See, Hezekiah does himself go into Yahweh's temple, but there is no record of Hezekiah directly asking Yahweh for help. Perhaps he did, but if so, we're not told. What we are told, however, is that Hezekiah sends a delegation covered in sackcloth to Isaiah, informing him of the Rabshakeh's mockery of Yahweh and asking Isaiah to pray for the people of Jerusalem. So we'll count that. Hezekiah is trusting Yahweh through Isaiah. So half credit. Now, keep in mind that Sennacherib has come via the Rabshakeh with a multi-pronged case against Hezekiah. But notice that Hezekiah doesn't mention a thing about that. All he mentions is that those men mocked Yahweh, the living God. They had declared that Yahweh will fail just like all the other gods. And they had made a case against Yahweh. So in turn, Hezekiah makes this case for Yahweh. And it was a very simple case. All he said was, rebuke them. They say you're just like all those so-called gods, Yahweh. So go ahead, show them who the living God is. Rebuke them. That's all he needed to say. His entire case, his entire hope rested on the belief that Yahweh is the one true God. And if he's wrong, Yahweh won't be able to stop any of this. All hope is lost. But if he's right, there is nothing at all to worry about. So remember, the big question on the table has been, in whom will you trust? Who is worthy of your trust? Who can save you? Who has true power? Is it Hezekiah? Is it Pharaoh? Is it Sennacherib? Or is it Yahweh? All cases have now been made. And it's time for a verdict. Let's read Isaiah 37, 5 through 7. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of all the words you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Yahweh doesn't say much here because he doesn't have to. He already has. Consider Isaiah 14, which says this, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts has sworn as I have planned. So shall it be as I have purposed So shall it stand that I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountains, trample him underfoot. And then Isaiah 31, eight says this, and the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man. And a sword, not of man, shall devour him. So Yahweh's verdict comes in the simple form of a brief reminder to Hezekiah. Don't worry, he'll leave and he'll die. And next week, we're going to find out that that's exactly what happens. Now, that's almost anticlimactic, isn't it? Like, I love when a when a battle, you know, an argument builds up, there's intense drama, and the music swells, and then, boom, something incredible happens. I mean, like, Sinatrib has this huge, dramatic case against Yahweh and his king that goes on for, like, 20 verses. And Hezekiah's case is basically, yikes, help! How on earth did Hezekiah end up winning? He won because he knows... That, the, that his opponent made the one fatal flaw that even the newest attorney at law knows you must never do. He made a case against the judge. <laughs> and even though Sinatra had indeed defeated kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. And he had a brilliantly executed case against Hezekiah. And he had a huge army camped right outside Jerusalem at that very moment. And he wholeheartedly believed that he was a destroyer of gods. He failed to recognize one immutable truth. Yahweh judges all. Yahweh is sovereign. Yahweh decides which kingdoms rise and which ones fall. And while you can make all the cases you want against Yahweh and his appointed king, even the most masterful of arguments will come to nothing. Yahweh gets the final word and his final word is this. Yahweh judges all, but he restores all who trust his appointed king, servant, and conqueror. In whom do you trust? Trust. Yahweh, trust his appointed king, servant, and conqueror. Now, who is that king? Sennacherib was right about this. It's not Hezekiah. On the whole, Hezekiah was a pretty good king, but he was just a shadow of the king who was, and who is, and who is to come Jesus Christ. Let's close our time by examining the case for that king. See, Sennacherib rightly criticized Hezekiah for making a foolish alliance with Egypt for help. But Jesus' only alliance, however, was with Yahweh himself. Even when he was desperate enough to sweat blood, he fully entrusted himself to the will of the Father. Sinatra accused Hezekiah of limiting religious freedom. Jesus, however, ushered in an era in which where you worship doesn't matter. What the father desires is those who worship in spirit and in truth, regardless of where you are. Sinatra mocked Hezekiah for being unable to provide riders for his 2000 horses. Jesus says that if protection was actually needed, his father would have provided over 12 legions of angels. Sinatra claimed that Hezekiah was not God's chosen king, but he was, but God, the father says of Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well-pleased. Listen to him. Sinatra's case is that Hezekiah is a liar who doesn't care about his people. Jesus is truth incarnate. He never lies. He never deceives. He never misleads. And Jesus, God's appointed king, who is also God's appointed servant, and we will soon see in the book of Isaiah that, that he willingly gives up everything, suffering and dying as a result because he cares about us more than we will ever know. Now, Sinatra may claim that true and lasting peace will come as a result of making alliance with himself, but he can't deliver and he doesn't intend to. Those who speak against Yahweh will never win their case. But the one whom Yahweh has appointed will never lose his. Listen, friends. Eloquent cases against Yahweh and against his king are not new. They began in the Garden of Eden. They continue here through Sinatra. They came again against Jesus 2,000 years ago. And they continue on to today. They come from the culture around us. They come from the media. They come with assertions that we are on the wrong side of history. They come with great confidence and in loud voices and in New York Times bestsellers and with many convincing words and maybe with the threat of military force behind them. Perhaps someday Washington will be gone. The Pentagon will be rubble and all of our aircraft carriers will be sunk. And then a case at that time will be made against Christianity and against us. But friends, if Yahweh is worthy of our trust, we need not fear. Yahweh judges all, but he restores all who trust in him and who trust in his appointed king and servant and conqueror. So three applications to close our time. First, when you hear the enemy's cases, don't get defensive. Hezekiah could have tried defending himself, and maybe he could have justified himself in part. But the fact is, Sinatra was right about some things, and those who make cases against us will probably be right about some things too. So don't defend yourself. That will often mean not answering a word to your accusers. Just let it go. Instead, latch on to, uh, to the same thing that Hezekiah does, the thing that he rightly knows that Yahweh will be most concerned with, his own glory. Second, when you hear the enemy's cases, don't feel like you need all the answers. It's okay if all you have is rebuke them. <laughs> If Yahweh is who he says he is, if he is the true God and supreme judge, he doesn't need your case in order to make his. And finally, if you're here this morning and realize that you have made peace with the enemy, then your application is to defect. Stop trusting in that which is untrustworthy. You're on the wrong side. All of Yahweh's enemies have the same fate, judgment, because Yahweh judges all. But Yahweh also graciously restores all who trust his appointed king, servant, and conqueror, Jesus Christ. So change sides, defect, trust in Jesus, and be restored. Please pray with me. God, I can barely imagine the stress that Hezekiah would have felt when that army came against him and he realized that he was all that's left. But God, history shows that that happens to all peoples eventually. I love our nation, Lord, but it's just a matter of time before it's gone. And God, we already see that there are many who make cases against uh, Christians, not even Americans, Lord, but Christians, against Grace fellowship against the people in this room persecution is coming Lord and when it does you want us to know that you are trustworthy and so we trust you Lord and we pray that you would give us the grace and the wherewithal and that you would use even this passage to remind us that no matter how many convincing words are leveraged against us and against you you will defend your own name. You will defend your people as you see fit. Help us to rest in that, Lord. Give us the grace to trust in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Please stand as we respond by giving glory to Christ.